backwards. 3.30. And if you are uh, able to, uh, please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Last week we, uh, we covered the entirety of the Old Testament in one sermon, or attempted to. Wow. And uh, today we're going to pick up with the entirety of the New Testament in one sermon. Again, the, the hope is to help you uh, understand how the Bible fits together. And I'm going to do my best to try and yell as loud as I can so that you can hear me. Uh, so 1 Corinthians 15, we'll begin reading in verse 1. God's Word says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, least of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. And God, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. That you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And now, Lord, as we look at the, the New Testament. Uh, the, the, the dawning of your Son coming and bringing His perfect kingdom. Lord, we, we ask that you would give us greater understanding of your word. To see it, to show us the, the beauty of Christ, to show us His glory, to show us how amazing it truly is that you sent your one and only Son to die for our sins. Lord God, I ask now that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. So that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 85%. I want you to remember that number. 85%. 85% of pastors around the world today don't have any access to theological or biblical training. What we're about to do today... Uh, looking at just the, the broad sweep of the New Testament, of this overview of the New Testament, 85% of pastors around the globe today don't have access to this sort of overview. Well, what we do here today, uh, by looking at the New Testament, what we, what we do here, I hope and I pray that this is going to absolutely bless you in your reading of God's Word, that you see how the whole story fits together. But I also hope it equips you, equips you to teach others, to teach your families, to teach your friends, to teach your neighbors about God's Word. Maybe even go to the nations and teach God's Word. Some think, well, you know, this is all really basic. I don't need this overview of the New Testament. It's so basic. I say, well, good. 
for you. Good for you. I'm glad that you have all this basic knowledge. My question is, what are you doing then with this basic knowledge that you have? Are you keeping it to yourself or are you passing it on to others? So that's my hope, that's my prayer with this last, last week and this week is that yes, it blesses you in your reading of God's Word, but it also equips you to go then and teach it as well. So what we're going to do today is similar to what we did last week. So if you have notes, you're taking notes, again, I'm sorry we weren't able to print anything off. There's nothing I could do about the electricity. This is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the major sections are going to be how to read the New Testament. So how do we read the Bible? How to read the New Testament? We're going to look at some New Testament themes. And then we're going to look at the major sections of the New Testament. We're going to go book by book. So once again, how to read the New Testament themes, the major sections, and we're going to do a book-by-book -book look at the New Testament. And it just so happens that uh, this is probably the longest sermon I've ever preached, and I have to shout it the whole time. So just get ready to buckle up. We've got a lot to cover. So, how do we read the New Testament? Well, similar to what we covered last week. Do you remember what the three contexts or the three backgrounds are for every passage? Do you remember that? Bonus points if you remember all three. So the first context was what? It was the literary context, right? Then the second was the historical context. And then the third was the theological. So first of all, literary context. The Bible is a liter is literature, right? It's a book. Yes, it's God's inspired and inerrant word. But it's also literature, right? And what kind of literature we are reading affects the way we understand it. So we need to ask this question of, what kind of literature is this? I read from 1 Corinthians 15. What is that? Well, it's a letter, right? And so 1 Corinthians, the way you read it, is going to be a little bit different than how you read, say, the book of Revelation, right? So the, we need to ask, what kind of literature is this? And in the New Testament, you have really three kinds of literature. You have narrative. So think most of the Gospels, right? The historical accounts of what Jesus has done in Acts. So you have narrative, then you have epistles, or, or you could say letters. So narrative, letters, and apocalypse. So apocalypse being uh, mostly the, the book of Revelation. So first of all, hey, look at that! Power is on! Man, I almost timed that perfectly. No. Uh, all right. Well, so first of all, is this working? <laughs> Maybe I don't have to shout the whole time. There you go. Yeah, hopefully it stays on. Huh, Paul, you keep it on for us, okay? <laughs> all right, where were we? First of all, the first kind of, of literature we see in the New Testament is narrative. Some might call this historical narrative. Narrative basically means an account, so a historical retelling. Think the Gospels and Acts. Now, some, when they think of the Gospels, they say they are biographies. Uh, they're the biographies of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Biographies of Jesus. And I said, yes, that, that's true. Partially true. But they're more than simply just a chronological biography. They, they're not just facts about Jesus' life. They tell us who He is, and they tell us what He's done. They reveal who He is as a person, the eternal Son of God. They also reveal the work that Jesus came to do. So think of it that way. So historical narrative, we see that in the Gospels. 
Uh, again, we're going to be going through a lot of passages, so feel free. If you can keep up, do so. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Look at how Luke begins his gospel. It says this. He gives us the purpose in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what is Luke saying is the purpose of his, of his gospel from the very beginning? What we see, he says, is to write an orderly account for you, that what? That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So to give an orderly account and to have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. So but one thing to keep in mind as well, even as you're reading the Gospels, there's different types of literature. There's the sayings and teachings of Jesus. There's the historical narratives that, that are describing what Jesus was doing as he's going from town to town. There's proverbs, there's imagery, there's parables, right? So that's the first kind of literature in the New Testament. The second is the epistles or letters. So think of Romans through Jude. Now the majority of the New Testament books are letters. So 21 of the 27 New Testament books that we have are letters. So why do people write letters? Well, that's inherent in many of the New Testament uh, books. That's the question that you should be asking as you're reading through, say, Romans or Philippians. Why is Paul writing this? Why was Peter writing this? What's the occasion? What's the purpose of this letter? Remember back to Philippians. What was Paul trying to do in Philippians? Well, he's thanking them for their generosity. He's calling them to joy in Christ. He's encouraging them to remain united, right? So that's the second type, uh, epistles or, or letters. The third type of literature in the New Testament is apocalypse. And most of the book of Revelation is apocalypse. Revelation, apocalypse, literally meaning the revealing. So the book is the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So when you read that book, when you read Revelation, there's all kinds of imagery that's taking place. Now, do you read imagery the exact same way that you read historical narrative? No, right? So when you read of the, of the, the, the type of locusts with stinging tails and whatnot in the book of Revelation, some have tried to say, well, that's Apache helicopters. Well, that's not how the original readers of the book of Revelation would have taken it. They would have understand, they would have understood that there's all kinds of imagery that's taking place. So the literary context, all this to say, is the literary context is important. What kind of literature this is. Second of all, there is the historical context. So the New Testament is real history. It's not made up stories about this guy named Jesus or letters forged by the Europeans in the 1500s. No, no, no. It is real history. And it takes place in the midst of real history. Remember at the end of the Old Testament, what, what had happened? Israel, they were taken off into exile. Why? Because they were unfaithful to the Lord, right? But then they were allowed to return from exile. They rebuilt the temple. And so the Old Testament ends with a sort of longing. 
that yes, they've returned from exile physically, but they're still in exile spiritually. There was this longing, as the Old Testament comes to conclusion, there is a longing for more. There's a longing for redemption. There's a longing for salvation. So the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, and then, it be, then the New Testament begins with the book of Matthew. And there's a couple of centuries that happen in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now there's no official revelation from God during that time, but that doesn't mean that there was nothing happening. Well, in that time between the Testaments, you have this guy by the name of Alexander the Great, who did quite a bit in conquering the known world. You also have in that time these, this Hellenistic Greek empire rise up, and so during the intertestamental time, there was all kinds of uh, revolts and revolutions. You have the Maccabean period, where you have the Jews rising up against the Hellenistic Greeks. And, it, and there's a period of time in which the Jewish people uh, ruled themselves in the land of Judah and Israel until the Romans came in and just completely conquered all of them. So roughly from the time of 63 B.C. all the way through the end of our New Testament, you have the Roman Empire ruling. So when Jesus comes, comes and is born in uh, the beginning of the Gospels, we see that He was born under Roman rule. You have Herod the Great, and you have His sons who are very complex and awful people, You have uh, who are part Jewish. They know the Jewish customs, but they're ruling there as Rome's representatives. So when you're reading the New Testament, you'll see many of these historical figures. And then think as the New Testament is, is happening and taking place, as these letters of the New Testament are being written, then in 70 AD, around the time in which many of these New Testament books are written, Jerusalem is attacked, the temple in Jerusalem is completely destroyed. So that's a brief overview of what's happening at the end of the Old Testament and into the New Testament time. So when it comes then to the timeline of the New Testament, you have the birth of Jesus Christ somewhere, I mean scholars disagree over the exact date, somewhere in the time likely to 4 to 6 B.C., 6 to 4 B.C., born into the world, born into Judah, all happening under Roman rule. So keep in mind though, as Jesus is born into the Roman Empire, the timing of the New Testament is incredibly important. You have what's often called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, although it was hardly peaceful. Uh, but you'll have a, a, a lot of common language throughout much of the empire. You'll have road systems for transportation throughout the empire that somebody like Paul on his missionary journeys would use. And also the gospel would spread easily or much more easier as you have this, this transportation uh, all throughout the known world. The New Testament itself is written in Koine Greek, which is common language. And, and friends, think about this. We have eyewitness accounts here. As I read from 1 Corinthians 15, we have the eyewitness accounts here in the New Testament. Again, in the New Testament. Again, these are not letters that are written thousands of years after these events. Or even hundreds of years after the events of the New Testament. But really, just years a matter of years after Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, you have these accounts. Altogether, roughly from the, the, the birth of Jesus to the final book of the New Testament, 
you have less than 100 years happening. Many of these letters are written just after, a matter of years after Jesus' life and ministry. So that's the historical context. But then you also have, third, the theological context. Think of it this way. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. He has revealed Himself to us. Does that amaze you? It should, right? So, so really, a question that, that we should be asking of whatever section of the Bible we're reading, whether old or new, is what is this teaching us about God? What's it revealing to us about His character, His nature, His love, and His concern for His people? The Bible has been written by, new, by a number of human authors, yes, but there's ultimately one divine author, the Lord God Himself. Through the Holy Spirit, He inspired these writers to write one story, the story of redemption. Remember, as we said last week, the Bible is not man's musings or random thoughts about God. No, no, no. The Bible is God's divine revelation of Himself. That starting point matters. If you think the Bible is just God's, uh, man's thoughts about God, then guess what? There could be errors. There could be contradictions. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. So the question we need to be asking is, what is this text teaching us about God? Three questions that I ask of just about every text I'm reading is, what does this teach me about God? What does it teach me about myself? How are we supposed to live differently? And how does this all point us to Christ, of who He is and what He's done? So there's a theological context. And let me just say this, friends. Theology is not some boring study of dry doctrine. No, theology is literally the study of God. If we don't want to know more about God, then we're really in a scary place. Because we never arrive at a place where we have all we need to know. So there is the literary context, historical context, the theological context. Well, what about some major themes? Well, uh, one of the major themes of the New Testament is kingdom. The kingdom is present in Jesus' ministry, in His teachings, His signs, His wonders, His miracles. Jesus' healings give us a glimpse of the world to come, uh, a world in which there is no sin and no sickness. His miracles show us that the kingdom has arrived in His ministry, but it's also not fully here. Which then leads us kind of to a second theme, the theme of the already, but the not yet. So we find that there are promises from the Old Testament that begin to be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, but they're not fully arrived. And one of those is the kingdom of God, right? You see it established. Christ the King has come. He's ruling and He's reigning, but His, reign, his physical reign here, as you see pictured elsewhere in the book of Revelation, is not fully here yet. There are promises that we have from God that are still to come to fulfillment. Think, for instance, of Mark chapter 1. We see the already of Jesus' kingdom arriving in Mark 1, verse 14. Where it says, now, G now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So we see the already of the kingdom being here, 
Right? But we also have in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, verse 10, what are we to pray? Your kingdom come. Right? So the not yet as well. So already but not yet. You also have another important theme throughout the New Testament is the church. Nearly all of the New Testament letters were written to churches or at least to church leaders. Christ loves the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul says husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or in Acts 20, uh, verse 28, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian pastors, and he's saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He, which Christ, obtained with His own blood. So the church is an important theme all throughout the New Testament. You see the diversity of the church. The diversity of the church is not made up of people from all the same walks of life. No, you see people from different economic backgrounds, social backgrounds, racial backgrounds, they're all making up the church. The church is made up of those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, no matter their background. You also see the church as a new temple, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and they're called, the church is called to live out the beauty of the gospel, showing that Christ's disciples are supposed to be marked by love for one another. Jesus in John 13 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will people, all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Isn't that incredible, brothers and sisters? At the core of our walk with Christ it is meant to be, yes, our love for God and also our love for one another. So the church is called to love one another. The church is called to be one. It's called to be united. Jesus in John 17, he prays that we would be one, that we would be united. You have the emphasis all throughout these New Testament letters to the churches, this call to unity. Look, you have a common faith in Christ. We're all united together in Christ. So you're called to be one. You're called to be united. Another theme is the new covenant. Remember last week we had the covenants of the Old Testament finishing with that final covenant, the new covenant hinted at in Jeremiah 31. And so God revealed that the new covenant would come. So why do we now eat pork or shellfish? Well, because we live under the new covenant. God brought about the new covenant. We no longer live under the old covenant because Jesus has brought the new. In Luke 22, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, He takes the cup and He says, and He says this, uh, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. Skipping on down, he says, Likewise, after the cup they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The writer of Hebrews unpacks the differences between the old and new covenants. Also, another important theme is the theme of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, you see the Holy Spirit sent upon the believer. We now, through faith in Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go, but now, in the lives of believers, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. In Acts 1, verse 8, 
Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you see that? The Holy Spirit is to come upon the believer to, do, to empower us to do what? To be his witnesses. So those are a few of the major themes. Now, let's take a look at the major sections of the New Testament. The first major section is the section of the Gospel and Acts. And you'll have a lot of narrative. So as mentioned earlier... There are four gospel accounts, or four gospels, or accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. So the first major section is the gospel through Acts. I mean, uh, Matthew through Acts. Acts is the second volume of Luke's. It's a follow-up to his gospel. In fact, in Acts 1, we see him writing again to Theophilus, this friend of his. He said that he was going to give an orderly account in the gospel. And now he's, he's going to summarize both. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So the gospel was written to tell us who Jesus is, the Gospels are written to tell us who Jesus is, and the Acts shows us how Jesus continues His ministry through the Apostles and through the sending of the Holy Spirit to empower His followers to be His witnesses. So think about the Bible in this way, friends. The Old Testament is pointing us to the coming Messiah. The Gospels explain Jesus as the Messiah. And then the rest of the New Testament is explaining further, unpacking further, who Jesus is, and how we are to live in light of the good news that He is the Messiah, the one who would save us from our sins. So the Gospels and, and Acts. Now it's important as you read the Gospels, they're not meant to be chronological biographies. You have four accounts written by four different people, all with different emphases on who Jesus is. But that does not mean that they then contradict each other. Some people will try to say, well, the Gospels, they can't get it right. It's not inspired by God because they contradict each other. No, no, no. They're all emphasizing different themes and different things about Jesus. Friends, think about it this way. If we were to, to go outside right now and set up four different canvases in the parking lot and we're asked four of you to paint the picture of Deadwood Mountain, would, would those four all look exactly the same? tell you what, I mean, you wouldn't even be able to tell what my picture was. Like, what is that? It's, just a, it's abstract. That would be my, my art, the abstract art. No, no, no. All of you, I know some of you are very artistic. And my goodness, your paintings would be much better than mine, right? But, but even those in our midst who are very gifted artistically, their pictures would look differently, right? Some might emphasize the colors uh, here versus there. Some might emphasize the trees or the rocks, right? So think about that. When you're reading the Gospels, they're all emphasizing different uh, important aspects of who Jesus is. Not contradicting each other, but, but, but that's similar to how we are to think about the, the, how the Gospels all uh, point to one picture of who Jesus is. So that first section of 
the gospel uh, narrative, right? Gospels through Acts. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to try and do, well, the, the, third, the second section would be uh, the epistles, and we'll get to that. Uh, and then the third section will be the apocalypse of Jesus in, in Revelation. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and do all 27 books in about seven minutes. How does that sound? All right. So buckle up. This might be where you need to re-listen to this if you can't get it all down. So the first book of the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, he focuses on Jesus' relationship with Israel. He's highlighting how Jesus fulfilled the role that Israel was to play in God's redemptive plan. And you can really see this in the first four chapters. You have Jesus fulfilling much of Israel's history. When you look at the temptation of Jesus in, in Matthew 4, all three of those temptations are very similar to the temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Israel sinned, but Jesus didn't. So we see in Matthew that Jesus is the promised Savior of the Old Testament. And that the people of God are all those who would respond in faith to Him. So Matthew, his account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection shows us that Jesus is the Savior of the people of God and the true King. Matthew is what we can call the gospel of action. As you read through it, you see the word immediately repeated over and over and over again. Until you get to the last week of Jesus' life. The gospel moves quickly to the last Jesus, I mean the last week of Jesus' life. When it gets to that last week of Jesus' life, it slows down before the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Mark was close to Peter. And he's likely writing to, a, to Gentile Christians who are in Rome, and they're facing persecution. So he's showing them that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, the suffering servant who saves His people. Luke is the longest of all of the Gospels. He was a Gentile physician. He's a companion of Paul. He's likely writing to a Greek audience. And you'll notice that in Luke, there's an emphasis on Jesus' interactions and love for people who are poor and marginalized. And what Luke is doing is he is showing us that Jesus is the Savior of all people, no matter their background. In this gospel, Jesus is a perfect Son of God who brings salvation to all people. Or as the, the angels announce in Luke 2 at Christ's birth, good news of great joy for all the people. In the Gospel of John, you have John who's a disciple, whom Je the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's an emphasis on this word, uh, on, on, the, on world and belief. You'll see the world's reaction to Jesus, and then you also see this constant call to believe in Him. You'll see Jesus' relationship to God the Father. So in Jesus, John is emphasizing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You'll have the I am statements all throughout the Gospel of John that are revealing who Jesus is. Next week, we move on. We're still in that section, the first major section of the Gospels in Acts. So you have Acts, which is written by, literally, the Acts of the Apostles, actions of the Apostles. Trivia question for you, real quick. Who wrote most of the New Testament? Wrong. Gotcha. Now, I, I, will, I will give you, okay, I'll give you partial credit on that answer. Paul wrote most of the books of the New Testament. 
But when it comes to the majority, when we're talking about like sentences and words, it was actually Luke. Because Luke's gospel and Acts, so Luke wrote Luke, right? And he wrote Acts. But those two volumes put together are more, I guess we say, voluminous than all of Paul's writings put together. So, got you there. Now, you can quiz people who weren't here today and feel better about yourself. So, you have Luke who wrote more than Paul, which is, which is incredible, right? So, a uh, uh, little uh, trivia for you there. But in Acts, you see the gospel begin to spread out. We read Acts 1.8, right? So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. In other words, you see the gospel ripples spreading out through the known world. You see the church growing and spreading through the word of God being preached and received all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first major section. Now we're going to dive into the next major section of the New Testament, which is the epistles, or we say the letters. And this is divided up into two major sections itself. You have the Pauline epistles, in other words, the, uh, the, the letters written by Paul. And so Paul wrote some of his letters while he was in prison. He also wrote some to pastors. You have Timothy and Titus. Uh, and so Paul has, has written most of these letters here. So you have the, the Pauline letters. But then you have the general epistles, which include Hebrews, John, the, the, the epistles of John, and Peter and Jude. Now you notice that I included Hebrews in general epistles because uh, there is some debate as to whether or not Paul wrote Hebrews. I would fall on, I don't think he wrote Hebrews, but I, I stick with one of the church fathers who said, who wrote the book of Hebrews? God only knows. Um, so at the end of the day, it doesn't truly matter because it doesn't say in the text that Paul wrote it, right? So um, it does matter in the Pauline epistles that Paul wrote it because he says he wrote it, right? So, but the writer of Hebrews would be, so Hebrews, the epistles of John, Peter, and Jude would be the general epistles. So as you're reading these letters, pay attention to the introductions and the conclusions. What issues is, are Paul or Peter covering in their intro? They're usually hinting at some of the themes they're going to write about. So when you're reading these, these books, reading these letters, ask, okay, what issues or what problems are Paul or, or James the other writers, what are they addressing? Okay? So let's make our way now through the Pauline epistles. So let's summarize Romans. This is so sad. I'm so sorry that I only am going to do one sentence of Romans, but it's the best I got. I try to summarize Romans too much. It's just going to... Well, so, okay. Romans. Theological explanation of sin and salvation. It's the book of Romans in a nutshell. 1 Corinthians. You have the theme of the wisdom of God contrasted to the wisdom or folly of the world. Paul is addressing all kinds of issues in the church of Corinth. Was, was Corinth known, uh, the church at Corinth there, were they known as a really good church that was just incredibly healthy? No, right? You read through it, you see they're dealing with all kinds of issues and Paul is addressing them. Second Corinthians, you see the importance of reconciliation in Christ. Paul is also defending his ministry as an apostle. Galatians, a Galatians introduction is unique. Paul hardly introduces the letter. He gets right down to business from the very beginning. He gets right to the heart of the problem. They're being led away by false teachers that are saying, well, in order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus plus do this. You must believe in Jesus to be saved and follow the laws of Moses to be saved. So Paul is combating these false teachers, saying that it's Jesus plus this 
that saves. Ephesians. He is calling the church there to walk in unity, to walk in peace, to walk in grace because of the salvation that God has provided by His grace through faith in Jesus. Ephesians, I mean Philippians, uh, we see joy and unity in Christ. Colossians, he's laying out the supremacy of Jesus. How do we walk in light of who, in light of who Jesus is? 1 Thessalonians, he's encouraging the church to continue faithfully. He deals with some of the, 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 the questions regarding the second coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. You have 2 Thessalonians where he's calling them to stand firm until the second coming. And you have in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, to not grow weary of doing good. Now we get to Paul's pastoral epistles where he's writing to the pastors of these churches, these leaders, these elders of the churches. 1 Timothy, he writes to Timothy who's his son in the faith who's a pastor, who's an elder in Ephesus, and he's encouraging him to stand firm in the truth. He shows that God desires godly leaders to lead the church. 2 Timothy now. 2 Timothy is very likely the last letter that Paul wrote, he ever wrote. Paul is awaiting his trial and his coming death. Read it with that in mind. It's the end of his life. It's the end of his ministry. Keep that in mind as you read it. And you'll see how Paul emphasizes the importance of guarding the gospel. 2 Timothy verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Chapter 2, verse 1, 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So guard the gospel and pass it on. Titus. Godly leaders in every church. He calls Titus to appoint elders that are pastors in all of his churches. He's warning against false teachers. Who, and he's, he's telling Titus how to lead different people in the church. Philemon is written to this man, Philemon, whose slave Onesimus ran away, but found Paul. And when he uh, was around Paul, he ultimately comes to saving faith in Christ. So Paul is writing to tell Philemon of Onesimus' salvation. And he asks Philemon to forgive Onesimus for running away. And he says to receive him as a brother in Christ. And it's fascinating. Paul doesn't say, look, I'm an apostle. Obey what I do. No, he's encouraging him. Look, receive him as a brother in the faith. After Philemon, we now get into the general epistles that are written by a variety of authors. Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? God only knows. Some say Paul, some say Apollos, some say someone else. Ultimately, as I said, it doesn't matter because it never mentions who wrote it. The letter of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians facing persecution. And the writer is calling them to persevere in the faith because of who Jesus is. James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And so we ask... What does faith, what does Christian faith in action look like? As you read through James, think of faith in action. That's what James is writing about. It's full of Old Testament wisdom, references, and allusions. So our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not cold, it's not dead, it's not lifeless. It's alive. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we interact with other people. First Peter. You have persecution against Christians starting to happen in the empire. So Peter's encouraging them. 
He's encouraging them to continue. Their, their faithfulness in suffering will eventually lead to glory. He's reminding them how Jesus suffered, so His followers are going to suffer. God's grace is going to see them through their suffering. If we're about to sing, "'Tis grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home." Second Peter. Peter is likely or possibly awaiting his own execution here. And so he's warning of false teachers. He's encouraging them to continue to grow in grace and continue to grow in their knowledge of God. The grace of God transforms. First John, same author as the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a call to keep Christ's commands, to love one another. Second John, walking in truth and love. We are to know God, and that knowledge of God, that love for God, is then extended to others. He's also dealing with false teachers there who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And you have 3 John, which is a short book and can kind of be summarized as hospitality in the church. Look at me if you're able to turn there. 3 John, verse 5. He's encouraging them. He's saying, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. That we may be fellow workers for the truth. In other words, there's traveling uh, missionaries that are going from place to place, and he's writing to them here, and he's saying, uh, support them, encourage them, strengthen them, show hospitality to them, because when you are supporting them, you also are a fellow worker in the truth. Jude little letter there right before the book of Revelation, written to believers and who are called, who are kept, and who are loved. The writer, uh, Jude writes, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So that's the end of the letters. Now, this third section, which comprises the book of Revelation, Apocalypse, Revealing. And so it's full of imagery. But actually, in chapters 1 through 3, you have these letters also. right? These letters to the churches. We did a sermon series on those a couple of years ago. I think it's two years ago now that we went through all of these letters to the churches there. But then in chapter 4 through 22, you have Apocalypse. And really, what's happening in the book of Revelation is you see the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ over all of history. As one writer said, John sees visions of things that have been, things that are, and things that are yet to come. Yet it is Jesus Christ who is ruling and who is reigning and who is Lord over all history. Get all 27 of those. <laughs> so that is the New Testament roughly in a nutshell. But friends, I want you to see, and I did this deliberately, it was deliberate, I left one very important theme off. And that is the theme of Christ. That is what we could say, likely one of the chief themes, if not the ultimate theme of the New Testament, is 
Jesus. These 27 books begin with the four accounts of his life and his ministry. But every one of these books shows us and proves to us that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament messianic hope for a Savior. For redemption that we saw last week in the Old Testament. They show that Jesus is the promised deliverer of his people. The one who is going to lead them out of exile. The one who is going to lead them out of bondage to sin. Where Adam and Israel failed and sinned, Jesus was faithful and sinless. Jesus survived the temptation in, in the wilderness. He was tempted and he was tried, but he was proved faithful. He was proved to be the sinless Son of God. The one in whom all of the promises, promises of God find their yes and amen. When you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, look at the way that people respond to Jesus. You'll see that there are those who reject Him, who outright persecute Him. There were also those who had a casual interest in Him. But when things got difficult, they turned away. But there were others who stayed and who continued with Him. And once Jesus was resurrected, they realized who He was. And they followed Him and they were persecuted for Him. As the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse, 20, verse 34, they were in prison, they had their properties plundered. Or they were like Stephen in Acts 7 who were murdered and martyred for following the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, how will you respond to Jesus? What about you? C.S. Lewis says that when it comes to Jesus, you can't just say that he was a good man or that he's an enlightened teacher. Because of what Jesus says. Because of what Jesus teaches. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also says, before Abraham was, I am. He takes the covenant name of God there for himself. And the religious leaders who heard it, they wanted to kill him. Which was the proper response for them for someone claiming that they were God. Unless he was God. So you can't say that Jesus is only or simply a good teacher. Because he taught he was God. He taught that he was the Messiah. He taught that he would suffer and die and on the third day rise. Lewis boils it down to you either think that Jesus is a liar. He's falsely saying all these things. That he's a lunatic. Or that he is Lord. So what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is. In Matthew 6, 16, verse 13, Matthew writes, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that points us to the truth of your Son, 
Your word that points us to life in Christ. That He is the Son of God. That He is our sinless Savior. Lord, I pray if there are any here this morning who are not trusting in Christ, that they would do so at this very moment. For those that are, Lord, help them to continue to persevere in the faith. To be a light and to be a witness here and to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray that we would take this knowledge of your word and that we would apply it to our lives, that we would live differently, that we would live transformed lives, that we would also go and tell it to others as well. But we also pray specifically for the 85% of church leaders around the globe who don't have access to your word and their language, to training, to be better stewards of your word. But may we be faithful witnesses, faithful senders of people who would go and tell this good news and go and teach of the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.